And please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9 this morning. Uh, entitled, The First Couple Message, A Beautiful Church in a Filthy City. And for those of you that weren't here last week, uh, but have known anything about the Corinthian church, you're wondering why in the world I've called it a beautiful church in a filthy city, because it is a beautiful church based on what God has done in her, how He has made her to stand. You'll see that in today's passage. But this church, we learn in from the Word of God here, we, we know in human history, this church also soiled herself and became a lot like that filthy city. And that'll kind of be explained as we go through the book. So it's a beautiful church in who she is before God and whom, in terms of her standing before God, but she has made herself dirty. We'll see that later on. But it's important for us to see that first part of it, the way that God does do the work of salvation and joins the people together, and he deserves thanksgiving and praise for that work. So we don't want to just jump into the book of 1 Corinthians and see their faults and see the instruction God gives to them. We want to thank the Lord for how he blesses a local church. Every single local church is in the process of maturity. There is not one who has arrived already. Not one. And there is not one local church founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not being changed and conformed into His image. When they do go astray by a different gospel, He, in the words of Revelation 2 and 3, removes their lampstand, removes their existence, but a church, immature as they might be, if they are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, He does His work. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 to 9. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've entitled this message, Reasons to be Thankful for an Immature Church. It's hard to be thankful for people who aren't perfect. I thought I'd hear at least a couple of amens after that <laughs> statement. It's hard to be thankful for a people who aren't perfect. It's hard to be thankful for people whose faults might annoy us. It's hard to be thankful for Christians who aren't perfect. But listen to this sentence. It's essential to be thankful for Christians who have not yet reached perfect maturity, but who are eternally cared for by God. See, if you can be thankful for them, then you can be thankful for what God's doing in your own life. Every single Christian is declared righteous before God. We stand righteous. We are not going to pay for our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we are, in everyday time and space, 
being conformed into his image as we live in this life. So when you look at another Christian and complain, we all can do the same about you. And that's not a fun game to play. I'd rather go with where the text takes us. And it starts a a letter, a, a book written to a church that has soiled herself, if you will, and it starts with thanksgiving for what God has done in her midst. And that's so important for us. Our outline this morning going through this passage will be, will be this, two reasons to give thanks for your local church. And I understand every Sunday we have visitors from different local churches coming to, to worship with us. Maybe you're on vacation out of town. So maybe you can bring these thoughts home to your own local church. But certainly, obviously, for the people at Kenyan Bible of Prescott, here are two reasons to give thanks for our local church. Remember last week, we learned that uh, this, this assembly of believers was called by God out of the world and into fellowship with one another, and they were called to be different, called to respond to, to money and sex and death and whatever it may be, called to respond differently than the rest of the world does. That's us. That's a local church. We are called to be different than the way the world lives. As they live under the, the lordship of Satan, we now live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're called to represent Him, to live according to His law, and He empowers us to do that. He's called us to do that, which means He's actually made us able to do that. He's not just called us out saying, you be different. He's made us different. He's forgiven us our sins, and He's also converted us, changed us. And so now Paul then expresses his thanksgiving for what God has done. And in this passage, it's, you see two characteristics or two um, attributes of God the Father come out of his praise, come out of his lips. And he's praising God for two particular things that he's done in the life of this local church at Corinth. And the Lord has done these two things here at Kenyon Bible Church and at other churches. So here's the first reason to give thanks for your local church. God has graciously made her rich in gifts. God has graciously made her rich in gifts. That word grace is important there. God is the one who has done it. It's not that they were so gifted in of themselves. He has done that work. Listen to verses 4 to 7. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him, and here's two particular ways, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were richly blessed by God, by His grace. They were richly blessed by God as a church, and this was a cause for thanksgiving from Paul. The emphatic word in the original language, the word that's kind of put right in front of you right away is thanks. I'm thankful always. It's meant to grab your attention. I'm thankful always, to which the reader asks, why is Paul thankful for this church? I'm thankful always, Paul says, because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. The grace of God, or you could say grace from God. I'm thankful for the grace that God determined because of his own character, because of his own nature, his own will, to give to you a sinful people. I'm thankful for what God has initiated in you. He's thankful for the grace that was given in Christ Jesus, that in every way they were enriched. That word enriched means to be very wealthy. Now, if you see a man on the street and you point out to your kids, that man is wealthy. 
it means that he has a lot of assets. But if you say that man is very wealthy, it's almost like you don't need the very, but you're just using it for emphasis. No, 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 no. He's very wealthy. I mean, there are people that are wealthy, but then there's him. That's the word here. This local church. Now, again, think. This is the church at Corinth. There's a man having an immoral relationship with his stepmother in this church, and the church isn't doing anything about it. There are people in this church suing one another. There are people in this church who are neglecting the poor in their midst and not caring for them. There are people in this church that have rivalries about their favorite teachers, and they're separating from one another. This is not a mature church, but this is a church that God says is very wealthy, not monetarily, but in all spiritual wisdom and speech, they've been blessed. And it's so important for the people of God to understand what God has done in their local church. We can so often focus on the problems. And Paul believes that God should be thanked and praised for the things that he's done in the local church. They've had been enriched in Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection, through the new life he's given these people that they are rich. It's not you've been enriched apart from Jesus. To be rich spiritually must come through the work of Jesus Christ. So they've been enriched in him. And notice he names a couple of specific ways that they've been gifted or enriched. Speech and knowledge. You've been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. What does that mean? They've been given new mouths to speak correct things. They've been given new mouths to be able to articulate to other people, to outsiders, how the outsiders can be made right with God. They've been given the greatest news to speak with their lips about how a person could be made right again with the Holy God. They've been enriched in this speech. They speak differently now. And they've been gifted to speak the right words to one another. God puts us into a body when He saves us. He saves you and puts you into a local church where one of the things you do is to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to warn one another, to build up one another, and you use your mouth to do that. And Paul's saying, He's given you new mouths, new speech. He's richly blessed you with a new way of talking compared to what you had before. He's enriched you in Jesus Christ in all speech and all knowledge. Now, this doesn't mean they all of a sudden know everything about everything. Oh, man, once you become a Christian, I mean, you can like win Jeopardy. You have all knowledge now. (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. All knowledge refers to true knowledge, true spiritual knowledge. You see the world when you become a Christian for the first time rightly. You used to think of it as Yankee fans, Red Sox fans. That's how the world is divided. That's it. Or Westerners and Easterners or Republicans and Democrats. That's how you used to think of the world. Now you think of the world as there are followers of Christ and there are those who I desire to see become followers of Christ, those who are lost. God the Father has created the world 
and he created it good. He created the world. He created people to share in his glory, to, 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 to enjoy this God, this creator. And man and woman have all sinned against God. We've rebelled against our creator. And God, because he is loving and merciful, sent his son to die for those rebels. He's also just and will punish evil. And so he punishes his son in the place of sinners. And he calls on sinners everywhere to trust in the work that Jesus did to forgive you of your sins and to make you right before God. And then to verify that that's all true, he raised his son, historical fact, raised his son from the dead 2,000 years ago. That is the knowledge that you've been given as a Christian. You can make sense of the world. That's the knowledge this church has been given. So that's what he means when he says, you've been enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. You know what people need to know. You have spiritual understanding. I think of, when I think of having spiritual knowledge, having spiritual insight, can't help but think of that John Newton quote where he's dying, his mind's going away. He knows that he can't remember all that he used to remember, and he tells a friend, he says, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. That's spiritual insight. That's knowledge. That's wisdom. And we'll see Paul start to talk about wisdom as we go on in this letter. They were tempted to move away from this spiritual wisdom that God had given them and to try to, try to gain popularity with the world and to try to be wise in the world's way of wisdom. So we'll learn about that coming up. But God has given them knowledge God has given every local church, immature as she may be, a certain knowledge that comes directly from Him, knowledge of the way of salvation, knowledge of who He is, and this church had it. Now, just to note, because there are connections here, as I go through verses 4 through 9, there are connections pointing us to things in the future, and, and, and this church, this church at Corinth, actually started to take this knowledge and to use it wrongly. So, so just a little teaser into that because we want to see that God has gifted us, but we're called to respond rightly to, with those gifts. He gifted them with a number of spiritual gifts, and we'll see in chapters 12 through 14 how they really polluted the gifts that God had given them. They used them wrongly. So just, just for a little kind of sneak peek into what comes in the future in terms of knowledge, Paul's thanking God that he's given this church the knowledge they need. But listen to chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. There were some believers in the Corinthian church who knew that they had the freedom to do certain things, and they were, they were not sins, these things that they were doing. Eating meat to idols, it's just meat. Okay, I worship God. There's nothing to this idol. I can eat meat. But there are certain people in that church that were stumbled by that. I don't feel right eating meat to idols, uh, from idols. And so these stronger believers who knew they could, they had their freedoms, they were actually using this knowledge to, to trouble the conscience of their weaker brothers and sisters. And that was a problem. So listen to what he says in verses 8, 10 to 11. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? They're going to go against their conscience and do what you did. You've got this knowledge, but you're leading them astray. And then he says in verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
So you can have knowledge of true spiritual things and destroy other believers with it. It's just important to remember. While we thank God for the knowledge, we have to be careful. And then verses, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 2, talks about the way this church has been gifted. You've got this gift and that gift, and you can build each other up, but you're leaving behind the love. These gifts are meant to edify and encourage and build up and love one another, but you're leaving behind the love. Chapter 13, verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all, there's our word again, knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So, friends, in a theologically sound environment, knowledge of truth isn't what makes you faithful before God. How do you use that knowledge? Do you edify? Do you bless? Or do you tear down with your knowledge? See, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He calls us to pay attention to how we communicate, not just what we communicate. It is all over the pages of Scripture. But this people have been given a knowledge. It reminds me of, I'm not a big fantasy genre type of guy, movies, books. It's just not my cup of tea, but I can imagine in, in some sort of Lord of the Star Trek Rings movie somewhere, I'm betting somewhere someone said, you've been given this knowledge, now use it for good and not for evil. I'm guessing that's a line somewhere in one of those movies. But it's a reminder to us, we've been given spiritual insight by the grace of God. It's important to use that rightly to use our knowledge rightly. But Paul is thankful that this local church, as immature as they may be, as seduced by the world as they may be sometimes, has been given knowledge and the speech that they need to continue as disciples of Jesus Christ. And he says there, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed about you, it's been publicly known that that you understand spiritual realities now, that you now speak differently. It's been confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any gift. The resources are there. You have them at your disposal, immature church. You have what you need. God has gifted you. God, in His goodness, has gifted you with what you need. And notice this. He's gifted you with what you need in the here and now so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great phrase for the church today. Hey, hey, who are you as a church? We're a people who've been given all we need while we wait for Jesus to come back. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That first century church was like cloudy days. He coming in the clouds today. Is he coming today? Not yet. Okay, we'll be faithful. We have everything we need. Next day, is he coming today? I don't know why in the world we stopped living that way. We're waiting for the revealing of Jesus Christ, for the coming in. That does, and I've, I've tried it out. <laughs> this week, as I've been studying this phrase, waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've thought about all of my problems in light of the fact that He's coming again. Friend with cancer, people going through relational difficulties, financial problems, whatever they may be in your life, Jesus is going to return again 
and make right all the wrongs and rule the new heavens and new earth with righteousness and grace. He will do that. He's coming back again. So it's good for us to think of ourselves as the people who've been given all that we need in this local church while we wait for Jesus Christ to come back again. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has graciously made this church, this church at Corinth, this church in Prescott, He's graciously made this church rich in spiritual gifts. Namely, here, in the speech that we need and the knowledge that we need. What does that mean for us? How do we respond to that? I've got a couple of applicational thoughts, and you may have some more, but a couple in my mind are for you who might be a new believer. I got word this week there are two people this summer that I know of that through the work and the sharing of the gospel from church members in this church, two people have been converted and now have given their lives to Christ and live as, with Jesus Christ as Lord. Two people here today. That, when you come into a group like that and we read the Heidelberg Catechism, we're singing songs, if, if you're one of those two, you might be thinking, okay, what does that mean? Or, or what's that phrase mean? Or I don't understand the Bible very much. Now, you do know, you know because that's how you come to faith in Jesus, that God is holy and righteous and that we've sinned against Him and that Him out of His love, His loving heart, the Father sends His Son who willingly goes because He's full of love, who willingly goes to the cross and dies for sinners. And you're called, we've all been called to repent, to turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ's righteousness, not our own, but to believe in Jesus Christ's righteousness in order for us to be reconciled to God the Father. And you know that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day and you have life in Him. Now, you know that, but you might say, yeah, but I don't know much more. I mean, I couldn't even find Corinthians earlier. That's okay. That's okay. You know, we didn't, we have four kids. We didn't have our kids and like look at them and go, all right, when are you going to talk? All right, when are you going to pay your own way here? There's a process, okay? And praise God that you are where you are, learning hearing His Word, have the friends that you have, He will mature you. He's maturing all of us, and we've all got ways to go. But we do that in the standing that we have peace with God at all times. That's really good. So for you, if you're an immature believer, or let's take it a step further, maybe you're a believer, as we read through the Heidelberg earlier, and we read through the Ten Commandments, you thought, I still sin in this way and that way. I hate my sin. I hate that I did that. I hate that I do that. I hate that I don't flee temptation enough or whatever it may be. Let's say you're not just an immature believer, but but you're a sinful believer. Welcome to the club. We go back to the gospel. We remember what Christ has done for us, the standing that we have, and that's where we go. You can be assured that you have been given all you need by a gracious God. Paul thanks God for His grace. Sinful believer, immature believer, you have all you need from the hand of God. Listen to this. A brother of ours that lived a few hundred years ago, Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book on assurance. The title's beautiful. It's called Heaven on Earth. He's saying that heaven on earth is being assured of where you stand before God. 
He wrote a book on assurance. Listen to what he says. The weakest Christian is as much justified, as much pardoned, as much adopted, as much united to Christ as the strongest, highest, and noblest Christian that breathes. Isn't that good? We have as much innocence before Him, righteousness before Him, pardon before Him, adoption into His family. We are as secure as His sons and daughters, as our brother next to us, who is so mature and so godly and has been in Christ for 60 years. We are both in the family. We are both secure. So, you can be assured that you've been given all you need by a gracious God. Second application, church, church members, be able to always give thanks for what God has given your local church. This is the first thing Paul does in his letter. He gives thanks for these people. Is that the first thing you do when you come into church and see that person? Or does your mind go to all the ways that they're wrong and flawed and immature? If only they knew what I knew. If only they were mature like me. If only they did everything like me. Or do you see the grace of God in their life? I know who they once were, and they're not that anymore. I know how they used to talk. They don't talk like that way most of the time anymore. They're different. They've been changed. Be able to always give thanks for what God has given your local church. If you were invited to um, dinner at a friend's house and they had you over and you walked in the door and immediately there's like nice, relaxing jazz music and it's just this warm environment as you walk in and they say, here, take your, take your shoes off and we've got slippers for you and here, come sit in this chair. What, what drink would you like? Pick any drink under the sun, we'll get it for you. Free refills. They bring you drinks, they've given you slippers, you've sat there, and they say, what's your favorite food? And you tell them your favorite food, Alaskan snow crab chilled with melted butter. You, <laughs> you tell them your favorite food and they say, that's what we're having tonight, as much as you want. And you sit there and, and they have cheap, inexpensive napkins. And you're thinking, I would have expected cloth napkins. I prefer cloth napkins, but they're cheap and expensive ones. And they actually, I'm all messy now, and these napkins aren't doing the job. And, and as you look up, you see a picture over on the side of the room that's kind of tilted and not adjusted. And you think, if they, you'd think if they were having me in their home, they'd want to be hospitable and fix all the problems that were in their home. And when you go out of that dinner and in the next week, people from your church or neighbors or whatever it may be, they ask you about that dinner that you went to, you just talk about the napkins they had and the decor was off. We do that to God's church. It is God's plan to change us slowly for some reason. We should be patient with one another. We should realize that you with faults are just like me, faults, but we're justified, we're sanctified, we're declared righteous, and He's doing something in our midst. By God's grace, we will not look like this five years from now. We'll look different. This is God's way of dealing with His local church. 
Be able to always give thanks for what God has given your local church. Paul looks at this church and he sees God's grace and he's thankful. Here's a second reason to give thanks for your local church. God will faithfully make her stand without guilt. God will faithfully in the future make her to stand before his judgment seat and be declared not guilty. God will faithfully make her stand without guilt. You see the the two attributes of God coming out, don't you? There in verse 4, I give my thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God. And then here now in verse 8, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end guiltless until the day of our Lord Jesus. God, the Father, the Father is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God the Father is said to be gracious to the church and He's said to be faithful to that church. He's been gracious to give them right now and in the past. He brought them into a relationship where His grace and giving them all they need, knowledge, speech, He's given them all they need and that that continues to be where they're at. So in the past, He's been gracious to them. In the present, He's been gracious to them. He's given them what they need. And in the future one day, you're going to see that He's been faithful all the way and they stand before Him without guilt. Let's read again those two verses. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful to sustain His true church so that they would be guiltless in Jesus Christ on Judgment Day. That word, Sustain to the end, that, that, that phrase, sustain to the end, that means it's been settled and it's secure. It's been settled and it's secure. That all true believers who come to Christ will be faithfully led to judgment day where they will be guiltless. No guilt. They will not pay for their sins. They'll be declared righteous, innocent. It's been determined. It's secure based on what heaven has done. We will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that day, the, Paul's using it here in reference to the judgment. There's a day when Jesus Christ will judge. When He returns, He does that judging work. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we learned. We're richly blessed with all speech and knowledge that we need, and we'll make it to the end without guilt being credited to us. Without guilt on judgment day. There'll be a day when Jesus Christ physically, I mean, this isn't just some spiritual thing that might happen. We will physically be judged. We'll be there. You'll see this. We'll be judged. And Jesus Christ will consider your life and declare not guilty. And on that day, there will be others that are declared guilty because they did not trust in the righteousness that He offered. They tried to achieve their own righteous way to heaven. Didn't work because God requires perfection. So it's only by Jesus Christ's righteousness that we're declared not guilty. There will be people on the day of judgment who are declared guilty. And there will be people, previous sinners, sinners before God, who've been now declared righteous by God, who will be told not guilty. Listen, there will never have been a greater relief than when the judge of all the earth looks at you and says, not guilty. 
because of His substitutionary death and resurrection. Just imagine that. Bring your mind to that place in the future, standing there, knowing who you are apart from Him, if He had not died for you, given His life for you, knowing who you are apart from Him, and hearing the words, as you maybe even rehearse the sins that you've committed, hearing the words, not guilty. Imagine hearing that. Paul says the believers in the church at Corinth will hear not guilty. That is striking. That's amazing. That's a reason to praise God, to give thanks to Him. Why will believers experience the euphoria of pardon realized on Judgment Day? Three words. And the three words are not, I did it. Those aren't the three words. The three words are found in your text. God is faithful. Why will you stand on judgment day and be declared righteous? God is faithful. Why has God not held your sin against you? Because God is faithful. Why, let's take it a step further, why even after being saved and you still have sinned against Him, Will he look at those sins and still say, not guilty? God is faithful. He made a promise. And the God of Scripture, the God of heaven and earth, does not break his promises. He's faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into a relationship with other believers into a relationship with Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father. See, when God makes you a Christian, He doesn't say, here's what Christianity is. I just declare you righteous. That's part of it. It's I declare you righteous and you are in God's family, my family. You're in my son's family. You're in your brother's and sister's family. I've given you an eternal relationship. We are in this together. There is love in this relationship. So yes, you're righteous, but you are in fellowship with us forever. Isn't that the theme of Scripture? God creates, Genesis 1 and 2, God dwells with man. Genesis 3, man rebels, God expels him from the garden, but he makes a way to cover his shame. He brings a way of salvation. And these past thousands of years, that way of salvation has been pointed to by this person and that person, this person, that person. And when you come to that way of salvation. We come to believe in Jesus Christ. He brings you into a relationship with Him. And what does the future hold? Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible. I told you Genesis 1 and 2, God dwelled with man. Gen- or Revelation 21 and 22, what does that praise God for? Praise God, God dwells with man. The Bible is a story bookended and filled all the way through with God out of His grace making a home with us. That's who God is. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the last word of this paragraph is key. You've been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Master. This new relationship involves us obeying Him, us doing what He says. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so in the rest of the book, you're going to have rebukes and corrections and information given. And it's all coming from the Apostle Paul who said, 
that He is the messenger sent by Jesus Christ. So your Lord, my Lord, friends, my Lord, your Lord has sent a messenger, the Apostle Paul, to tell us things, to give us commands. And those commands, because Paul and his apostle, they come from Jesus Christ. So our Lord is going to call us to things in the rest of this book. But you have to remember who we are, even as immature or maturing believers, and what God has done for us. So we can give thanks for the people who make up our local church and other local churches because God will faithfully make them stand on the day of Christ. It reminds me of what Paul said to another church who also had issues seeing one another rightly. There was this divide over Jew and Gentile and eating vegetables or not eating vegetables. What do we do? I don't think you're viewing this rightly. I don't think you're viewing this rightly. Do you even trust in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? That was what was going on. Listen to Romans 14.4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld because the Lord is able to make him stand. So important for us to see. The Lord makes believers stand. We can thank God that he will make immature believers stand even all too often sinful believers stand, annoying believers stand, every other believer who's not you, he can make them stand, and he will. He will. Now, before we pray and move on and wait for next week's teaching, I want to just say a few words about the next part of Corinthians. I want to be careful that we get this straight. Today, today's passage is greatly encouraging. This is what God does. He graciously gives the church what they need, and He faithfully will see them through to the end. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I'm just going to read a few verses of next week's, okay? Again, another peek behind the curtain. Here's what He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'll just stop there. So today we have the warm encouragement And next week, we see Paul rebuking the same church. And I want to be careful because it's been said, and we've said this before, it takes a whole Bible to be a whole Christian. We don't get to pick and choose. I love 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I don't love so much the rest of it. Andrew, you should be very clear about 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. And you shouldn't be so serious about the rest of the book. We can't do that. So let me try to shepherd you through this. In the coming weeks and months, there will be rebuke. And this isn't saying that every single thing in 1 Corinthians, every single one of their problems are your specific problems. But it will be a cause for examination, right? What did they do? How could I maybe do that? How am I maybe tempted to do this? So I want to help you think through that. 
I'm going to be bringing you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 4 through 9, our text today, often, because I want to remember who you are before God. Romans 5 says that we have peace with God. We stand in grace. I want to remind you of that as we go through 1 Corinthians. But we can't just say, I have peace with God, so really the commands don't really matter. I'm going to heaven. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He says, you need to know where you stand before God, and He has graced you. He is faithful to you. You will stand before Him. Now be deadly serious about obedience. And so when you obey, or when you're convicted or rebuked, I want you to see it as a rebuke to one who stands secure in the family of God. This is not you trying to earn your way or keep your way in the family of God if you don't obey this. That's not what it is. You stand secure. So I want you to seek to obey all of these commands, receive these rebukes, because you're grateful, not because you're auditioning for heaven. That's been done. So we want to obey because we're grateful. And we want to show, yes, He's changed me. I'm different. I want to obey this. So we have to take both kind of streams very seriously. The Holy Spirit gives us both of them, doesn't He? You know how God makes you more mature? One of the big ways, He rebukes and He gives commands. It's because He's good. He doesn't leave us. He guides us, and His grace is there the whole time. I remember seeing a number of years back, this was very helpful to me, and I'm not saying that I do this perfectly at all, but I remember I remember especially, uh, I don't need to qualify it as much. <laughs> I remember a time when I first got into pastoral ministry, and I remember a night. Uh, I would preach at a um, single adult group on Friday night, and I would preach. Michelle would come with Weston, who was a baby, and, and then I'd bring them home and then come back because what do single adults do on Friday night? They don't go to bed. They stay up till three in the morning. And so I would preach, go home, bring them home, come back, and just fellowship with the, with the people in our, in our group and uh, stay up till all hours of the night with them, having great conversations, so many rich conversations during that season. But I remember one time there was a person in the group who was at odds with some of the people in the body and some of the leaders of the group, and it was really kind of anno- an annoying thing, um, really just not prizing the unity of the church. And I remember walking in, and I'll never forget this, hit me like a ton of bricks, walking in and seeing them, and my first thought was, oh my goodness. And I remember being convicted immediately. What are you doing? This is one for whom Christ died. They are not yet what they will be, and neither are you. It's just a good reminder to me, what's the first thing that I think when I see another believer? I want it to be chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, because that's where Paul starts. Not to say that there's not things to work through. There are things to work through. But where we stand is that God's been gracious to us, and He's been faithful to us. He's been gracious to Him, and He'll be faithful to Him. He's been gracious to her, and He'll be faithful to her. Just like He's been gracious to you, and He'll be faithful to you. It's a good reminder for us. We can give thanks for our church and for all the churches who are 
growing in maturity because God has been gracious, God's graciously made the church rich in gifts and because he will faithfully make the church be a people without guilt. Let's pray together. Father, there is much to be thankful for even in this local church. You've blessed us with spiritual knowledge and the ability to speak rightly to one another and to the lost. Even, Father, with blemishes and ways to grow, we've been richly graced by You. We praise You for being a God who sustains us until the end when we will be found not guilty in that day. Cause us to use the riches that You've given to us in a way that glorifies You in the eyes of other believers and around the world to those who see us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.